Section 2 of Essays on Art. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cam Davis. Essays on Art by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Translated by Samuel Gray Ward. Section 2. In early times the writer perceived this significance in his relation to the public, and even in later days he cannot dispense with it. However little he may seem called to give instruction, he still feels the need of imparting to others with whom he has a sympathy, but who are scattered up and down in the world. He wishes by this means to renew his relations with old friends, to strengthen those friendships now existing, and to acquire others in the new generation for the remainder of his term of life. He wishes to spare the young those circuitous ways in which he wandered up and down, and whilst he observes and profits by the advantages of the present time, preserves the recollection of earlier and more meritorious endeavors. Our little company has been formed with this earnest aim. May a serene state of mind accompany our undertaking, and time discover whither we are bound. The essays which we intend to publish— though the work of separate hands, will, we hope, never be found to stand in contradiction with each other, even when the ways of thinking of the authors are not altogether alike. No two men see the world just alike, and different characters will apply in different ways a principle that both equally acknowledge. Nay, the same man will often see and judge things differently. Early convictions must give way to more mature. May not the opinions that a man thinks and utters be expected to stand all trials if he keeps on his way, true to himself and others? It is the wish and hope of the authors to remain in harmony with each other, and a great portion of the public. Yet they cannot conceal from themselves that many a discord will be heard from various quarters. This is the more to be expected, because they differ on more than one point from the received opinions. Far from wishing to reprobate or change another's way of thinking, we shall firmly utter our own opinions, and decline or accept the contest as circumstances dictate. But we shall always hold by one creed, and insist perpetually upon those conditions that seem to us indispensable to the formation of an artist. He who has a thing in hand to do must know how to take sides, or he is not worthy to work anywhere. In promising to give observations and reflections upon nature, we would premise that we have in mind such as relate particularly to the plastic arts and art in general, and also to the general culture of the artist. The highest demand that can be made of the artist is still this, that he shall hold to nature, study her, imitate her, and he shall produce something resembling her manifestations. How great, nay, immense, this requirement is, we do not often consider, and even the true artist becomes aware of it only by progressive cultivation. Nature and art are divided by an enormous chasm, which genius itself, without outward assistance, would never be able to step over. All that we see about us is only raw material, and if it happen rarely enough that an artist succeeds, through instinct and taste, through practice and trial in appropriating the outward beautiful side of objects, in choosing the best out of the good before him, and at least learns how to produce an agreeable appearance, how much more rarely does it occur, especially in these later times, that the artist is able to penetrate into the depth of his own soul, as well as take the measure of outward objects, and thus, instead of producing works of a merely superficial effect, emulate nature herself, and create a spiritually organic whole, giving to his work an import in a form that makes it seem at once natural 
and supernatural. Man is the highest, indeed the proper object of plastic art. An universal knowledge of organic nature is necessary in order to understand and develop him through the labyrinth of his structure. The artist ought also to be theoretically acquainted with the inorganic bodies and the general operations of nature, especially such as can be applied to the purposes of art as, for instance, sound and color. But what a circuit he must make if he were obliged laboriously to seek in the schools of the anatomists, the naturalists, and physiologists for what pertain to his aims. Nay, it is even a question whether he would learn the very things most important for him to know. These persons have too much to do to satisfy the demands of their own students, to be able to think of the limited and peculiar wants of the artist. Here, then, we mean to step forward, and though we cannot expect to be able to carry out the necessary labors ourselves, it is our intention partly to give a general survey of the subject, and partly to lead the way to an examination of particulars. The human form cannot be comprehended merely by the contemplation of its surface. The interior must be laid bare, the parts separated, their union considered, their differences known, action and counteraction studied, the concealed, the ground, the foundation of the visible must be learned, if we would truly observe and imitate that which we see moving before our eyes in living waves as one beautiful, undivided whole. The view of the surface of a living body deceives the observer, and we may here as elsewhere call to mind that true saying, What man would see, he must first know. For as a short-sighted man sees an object more clearly when he's moving away than when he first approaches it, because the intellectual vision comes now to his aid, so in knowledge lies the perfecting of sight. How admirably the student of natural history, if he possesses at the same time a knowledge of drawing, is able to imitate objects, because he sees what is important and significant in the parts, out of which springs the character of the whole, and emphasizes it accordingly. End of section 2 Recording by Cam Davis